Hi, Sarah from Concord, New Hampshire, calling about ease of voting in the state of New Hampshire. It's not easy at all registering to vote. I moved here from California a year ago. It was so easy to register to vote and everybody knew how to do it. It was extremely accessible to everybody. You just did it online. Here in New Hampshire, apparently I have to go down to a clerk's office, although I'm not sure where or what the hours are. And I can't help but think that there's a lot of people who aren't going to vote because they're making it very difficult. The pandemic changed the 2020 election. Many Americans took advantage of mail-in and early voting, leading to record turnout. But since 2020, 33 states have enacted 50 laws that make voting harder or increase the risk of election subversion. That's according to a report from State's United Democracy Center, Law Forward and Protect Democracy. How will voting in this year's midterms look different than it did in 2020? This conversation is part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six public radio stations across the country. We're looking at how democracy is or is not working for everyone. After the break, we discuss an upcoming U.S. Supreme Court case that could overhaul how much power state lawmakers have when it comes to running elections and choosing winners. I'm Jen White. You're listening to the 1A Podcast, where we get to the heart of the story. Remember, you can join us for future conversations. Just download the 1A Box Pop app and leave us a message. Let's get into the conversation. Joining us from New York City is Wendy Weiser. She's the director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law. Wendy, welcome. Thank you for having me. And joining us in studio here in D.C. is someone many of you will be familiar with from his time guest hosting this show. Todd Swillick is host of the new Vice News series, Breaking the Vote, which examines threats to our democracy. There's a new episode online every Friday leading up to the midterm elections. Todd, it's great to see you. Great to see you, Jen. Well, let's start with some election news. Yesterday, the House voted to overhaul the Electoral Count Act. Here's Democratic Congressman Jim McGovern from Massachusetts. I believe a vast majority of us, Democrats and Republicans alike, can agree that the current code that guides the counting of electoral votes, known as the Electoral Count Act, um, is severely outdated and vague. The Electoral Count Act's ambiguous, antiquated language allows for broad and sometimes dangerous interpretations that weaken our elections and threaten our very democracy. Wendy, what's the significance of this? Well, it's actually really quite significant that now both the House and the Senate on a bipartisan basis have passed legislation that would update the Electoral Count Act, which governs the counting of electoral votes um, for um, president. Um, and it's an acknowledgement that the existing law has has had ambiguities is um, and has been put under strain by an effort to sabotage elections in 2020, that it needs to be updated so that it is not not vulnerable to manipulation and to shenanigans going forward. And so this is a really important law to clear up. And now in both houses, the legislation to fix that has been passed on a bipartisan basis. And Todd, I'd love your take on this as well. I mean, I I see this as trying to plug the Trump-shaped hole in the Electoral Count Act, a 140-year-old law, the very one that Donald Trump tried to exploit in his coup attempt in 2020. And I think everybody remembers exactly how that went. Uh, So the House bill uh, goes a long way to doing that. But really, it's solving... (laughs) 
they're legislating the last coup, mm. and the problem is the next one that, that we can see developing in states, and I think we'll probably talk about that. We should say the House has passed one version of this bill. The Senate's not quite there yet. They, they seem to have the votes to pass a slightly different version. Um, they haven't got it on the floor yet, and we're really looking forward to after the election in the lame duck period between the election and the new year when it's hoped that the House and Senate can come together and, and get a compromise here. Um, the, the important parts of this, just just really quickly, I say the Trump-shaped hole in the Electoral Count Act. One, making sure that everybody understands that the vice president, that the law will state explicitly, the vice president has a ministerial role here, no authority to reject electoral envelopes. It's been described to me and to others as, look, this is the Oscars, mm-hmm. okay? When you come and open the envelope, you announce who the winner is. You don't get to pick who wins Best Actress, okay? That's just not how it works. So it's the Oscars. That's one thing. Um, the, the other thing is raising the bar, making it much more difficult, hopefully much more substantive for objections. When a member objects, you remember the last time objecting to Arizona, to Pennsylvania, all of that delay while the rioters are busting in the building – all of that delay to try to push and push and push and push and eventually get the vice president into a limo to get him off the premises was all part of the coup attempt. Members still have to be able to object to results if they feel there are major election problems. This raises the bar significantly. It can't be one in each chamber anymore. The House bill raises it at the threshold to one third of members in both the House and the Senate have to object. So that's a significantly higher bar. People have to be much more serious hopefully, about objections. There are other changes too, but I think those are the big ones. And just briefly, Todd, this is a bipartisan effort, but how bipartisan is This is it? really important. So so quite – the Senate has always been a much more reasonable place um, in general <laughs> uh, and constitutionally probably. Uh, but when it comes to how devoted they are to Donald Trump and the Trumpist GOP – Um, There looks to be enough true bipartisan support in the Senate. Yes, nine Republicans yesterday voted with all the Democrats to pass this bill. But look at who those nine were. If you look at the list, yes, there were nine. All nine, every single one of them is not coming back to Congress next year, Uh, mostly because they've been purged. They include Liz Cheney, Adam Kinzinger. Uh, other members, uh, Jamie Herrera-Boitler from Washington State, have either lost primaries or have bowed out because they've been purged from the party. Every single Republican who's running or is likely to come back next year voted no. And that tells you where Republicans who still want to play in the game, how they know where they have to be on election subversion and on coup attempts to stay viable in the party. It tells you everything you need to know. Wendy, your organization, the Brennan Center, has been documenting voter laws for decades. To what extent are we seeing more changes to state voting laws than we have in the past 20 years or so? So um, I, I want to reiterate um, what, what Todd said earlier, that the Electoral Count Reform Acts are, are, are important, but they only address a small portion of the threat of election sabotage and of um, uh, and of efforts to manipulate the elections even from the last coup attempt but certainly not from the next one there's much more that needs to be put in place and that's in part because we've actually seen a lot of changes at the state level over the last two years, really dramatic changes, both in laws making it harder to vote 
and in this new species of election sabotage legislation that would enable partisans to interfere in election administration and outcomes. We, we haven't seen anything like this before. And this is uh, this um, new legislation is, is something that is deeply threatening to our democratic system. And and on the voting side, what we've seen on the vote suppression side, the the spike in laws making it harder to vote is by far the most that we've seen, not just in the decades since we at the Brennan Center have been tracking this, but really since the post-Reconstruction era, when there was a, a huge spike in, in laws making it harder to vote um, right after the Civil War. So we're, we're seeing a real um, attempts to rewrite and reshape the election system. Well, you've documented nine laws enacted in six states this year that, quote, open the door to partisan interference and, quote, threaten the people and processes that make elections work. Briefly, what are some of these laws and what are they meant to do? The laws actually put uh, give partisans a lot more power over the election administration process, and rather than um, rather than letting the election professionals um, run elections and follow the laws, in some cases we see legislation that enables legislatures to. Um, replace election officials midstream. Um, we saw that in Georgia, for example, where they can just um, uh, replace them with partisan appointees um, that um, m- midway through the election cycle. In some places, we've actually seen legislation that would give um, legislators the power to um, review and override vote counts. Um, and in some places, we're seeing laws that are actually increasing criminal penalties um, or creating new criminal penalties for people who are running elections that open the door to um, efforts to intimidate them into taking steps that might undermine free and fair elections. Todd, to what extent are election deniers entering our political system? This is a major problem. The extent is approaching ubiquitous in certain places. Now, um, Washington Post, uh, some Washington Post has done some great coverage in the last week uh, about the percentage. I think they arrived at a number of 50 percent of Republican candidates in this upcoming midterm who have some form of authority over election administration. 50 percent deny the 2020 election. That's only one metric of whether you're really – I mean election Mm -hmm. denier is a term that we use, but it doesn't necessarily indicate future behavior, which is the problem. But we look at – places, uh, look, we know we have an electoral system. Look at places that are the swing states. We know already that if some bad stuff goes down in 2024, it's going to be in the swing states in a presidential election. Um, There are candidates, Republican candidates running for secretary of state in Arizona and Nevada, Michigan, and we have to say Pennsylvania, not secretary of state, but governor, because uh, in Pennsylvania, the governor controls the process. It's a little different. Um, Not only are all of these candidates election deniers, uh, but in those first three uh, states I mentioned, they are, they announced their candidacy at a QAnon conference in Las Vegas. Look it up. It was called a Patriot Double Down. Um, They are all conspiratorial adherents to a Trumpist ideology that says the election was stolen. And many of them have made statements that they are basically here to redress that theft from Donald Trump. In the terms of Pennsylvania, the governor candidate there, Doug Mastriano, was at January 6th. He has publicly stated that Pennsylvania's voter roll should be purged completely, making everyone re-register, which is a major, major vote suppression issue. Um, And he has stated unequivocally that Joe Biden did not win 
the 2020 election. Now, this all points to some of that um, might just kind of make you roll your eyes a little bit. But the potential for malfeasance here and the potential for major election subversion really can't be overstated because um, this movement has had four years to develop since Donald Trump injected um, this these years of lies into the system. And we have to think about what happens in 2024 when, let's say, um, Donald Trump or another Republican is running – for election in these states. It's a close race in Arizona, and the Democrat comes out on top. Um, you're likely to see something different this time than you saw last time. Last time was very ad hoc, kind of came from the top Rudy Giuliani, people running around saying election lies. There was this ad hoc retrofitted effort to um, to try to overturn the election. It won't be like that next time. What you're likely to see are many, many people, officials on the local level, county clerks, election officials, throwing up dust, throwing up questions, concerns, ballots, Dominion voting machines, all the things you're used to hearing are now sort of prospectively part of a major doubt in the system. And then what happens when Mark Fincham, who is the candidate for secretary of state in Arizona, a member of the Oath Keepers militia and a QAnon adherent. What happens if he's secretary of state? This time you have not only a sympathetic but really a messianic activist for uh, redressing Donald Trump's loss of 2020. You have that person in place to refuse to certify results. That spells crisis. Well, you've talked to election deniers on your show. One of them is former New Mexico County Commissioner Coy Griffin. Earlier this month, a judge removed him from his job for his part in the January 6th riot at the Capitol. Liz Landers interviewed Griffin for your show about his refusal to certify the primary results in his county. Commissioners play no role in the administration of the election or the tallying of votes. And certification is usually a procedural non-issue. You you said in the county commission meeting when the results did not end up getting certified, that your refusal to certify was, quote, not based on any evidence. It's not based on any facts. I could have given evidence and examples, but the reason why I said what I did is because that's all I need as a sitting county commissioner to cast my vote. That's the power of the vote. And that's, you know, I don't have to make my case to cast my vote. Wendy Griffin was the first public official to be disqualified from holding public office for the attempted insurrection on January 6th. And this was all based on Section 3 of the 14th Amendment. What was the legal argument here? Well, the Section 3 of the 14th Amendment actually does disqualify people for um, holding public office if they participate in insurrection. I mean, this, in fact, was what um, uh, the 14th Amendment was uh, adopted after the Civil War, and um, it was an attempt to um, restore a union um, and order. And um, so it hasn't been used since then. Um, We haven't faced the, the threat of of an insurrection since then. And, and these are very perilous times. And I, I did want to say it is, it's, um, I wanted to reinforce the fact that the threat is now metastasized at all parts of the system. We are not just seeing election deniers running for office. We are seeing an attempt to install people who are either seeking to destabilize the system or distrust the system at all levels of the election system, whether it be um, mobilizing people to serve as poll workers or poll watchers, whether it's county clerks, whether it's um, chief election officials, whether it is, um, you know, 
know, individuals who are going to be standing outside and, um, you know, a- attempting to um, the, to uh, harass voters. Um, we are seeing all aspects of the system, legislators being um, election denialism infecting that. And there's a real risk because, you know, we, we relied on these checks, <laughs> um, in, individuals of conscience um, in 2020 standing up for uh, the rule of law upholding the system. And now uh, systematically, those checks have been eroded, individuals have been replaced. Um, and, and so we, we really need to, uh, we really need vigilance now. I mean, we, we need all the checks checks we can get. Well, there is an upcoming U.S. Supreme Court case that could radically change who has a final say in election laws. And joining us now to talk about that is Carolyn Shapiro. She's a law professor at Illinois Institute of Technology's Chicago Kent College of Law. She's also co-director of Chicago Kent's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Carolyn, welcome back to 1A. Thanks for having me. Wendy, the Supreme Court will hear more v. Harper in the fall, and it revolves around the independent state legislature theory. What does this theory say? This is a theory. It is. It is not actually, and has never been the law, and it's quite radical. It, it would give state legislatures virtually unrestricted authority to set the rules for federal elections without all the usual checks and balances that um, govern ordinary lawmaking process and protect against abuses like state courts, state constitutions, governor's vetoes, and even the people acting through ballot initiatives. And this has been raised um, in a case that you mentioned, Moore v. Harper, that's currently before the U.S. Supreme Court, and that was a case involving an extreme partisan gerrymander out of North Carolina that would have ensured that one party would get 10 or 11 out of the 14 states, um, the state's 14 congressional seats for the whole decade. Uh, The state Supreme Court threw out that map, saying that this gerrymander violated the state's constitution, and two of the legislatures now have invoked this radical theory to say, no, the state constitution, the, the federal constitution gives state legislatures exclusive power, and so they're free to violate their state constitutions. This gerrymander should be reinstated. State courts, state governors can't do anything about it. So that is what they're trying to do, and that would radically upend election law and all the checks and balances that have existed for centuries in this country. Well, North Carolina's state Senate leader, Republican Phil Berger, spoke with WUNC's politics podcast recently. Here's what he said. Uh, The provision of the federal constitution we're talking about says that the time, place, and manner of elections to federal office are to be determined by the state legislatures overseen by the U.S. Congress. And uh, while it's not specifically written into the federal constitution, also overseen by the federal courts. So the idea that uh, the uh, that any state legislature will be totally unchecked in terms of what uh, they, they may or may not do is uh, is just a scare tactic. Carolyn, exactly how much control do federal courts and Congress have over state legislatures and how they run elections? Well, the Congress can change make its own rules with respect to congressional elections. And in fact, many of the ways that we take for granted in terms of how congressional elections operate is due to federal law that Congress has enacted. But there are many, many aspects of the way elections operate that Congress has not said anything about. Uh, And that includes things like how voters register how the absentee ballot system operates. Those things have been left to the states, 
And it would be a big change to expect Congress to, to, to step in and regulate that, those types of election laws for, for federal elections at that sort of granular level. The federal courts, too, can step in, but they only have a say with respect to the federal constitution. And with respect to partisan gerrymandering, the Supreme Court has said federal courts can't adjudicate that. It's not something that you can go to federal court and complain about. We'll be back with our discussion on the legal theory that could overhaul our elections in just a moment. You're listening to the 1A Podcast. Remember, you can connect with us on Twitter at 1A. Let's get back to the conversation. Uh, We've been talking about this upcoming Supreme Court case, Moore v. Harper and the independent state legislature theory. Carolyn, the theory points to the elections clause in Article 1 of the U.S. Constitution. It says, quote, the times, places, and manner of holding elections for senators and representatives shall be prescribed in each state by the legislature thereof, but the Congress may at any time by law make or alter such regulations, end quote. What's your interpretation of how the founders thought of this idea and how elections should be run, Carolyn? There's no there's no evidence at all that the founders thought state legislatures could operate somehow independent of their own constitutions. To the contrary, state legislatures were are creatures of their state constitutions, and the founders had a lot of worry about too much power being vested in state legislatures. In fact, in, during the period right before the founding, there were uh, right before the constitution was 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 written state constitutions actually started to restrict legislative power even more so that the notion that the founders thought well in this one particular incredibly important area we're going to not have any internal state constitutional checks on these legislatures is is really quite absurd it, there's there were many in the early part part of the country's history, there were many constitutional provisions that directly regulated federal elections and either ex- explicitly referring to federal elections or uh, re- referring to all elections, but nonetheless applying to federal elections. So the this this is a very ahistorical theory. It has nothing to do with anything that was happening really during the entire first century of the country's history. I just want to contextualize this a bit, Todd and Wendy, when we look at what's happening more broadly across the country in terms of our elections. I mean, we've talked about voter suppression laws. We've talked about election deniers running for office. And now we've got the Supreme Court case coming up. Todd, how are you... (laughs) How are you putting this all in context together? Well, first of all, to answer the question, let me correct a mistake that I made earlier. I think I said that the Washington Post reported that 40 percent of candidates with Republican candidates with sway over elections are election deniers. I was wrong. It's 62 percent, worse than we thought. That was my error, but I'm just looking at the at the reporting in the Post here. Um, the, the overall context here, yeah, it's something. it's something to contemplate. I mean – really the thread that runs underneath all of this, even underneath the Donald Trump's personal claims of not having lost. Donald Trump's personal claims of not having lost only found fertile ground because he is heading up an authoritarian movement in the Republican Party right now. I think it's very important to call it what it is. I think it's very important for journalists, especially political journalists, to call it what it is. This is not the regular old 
Republicans versus Democrats arguing over policy, having drinks at the end of the day, politics that we all wish we were still covering. Maybe that wasn't great either, and it wasn't. Um, this is not that. I think the reason that Donald Trump's movements, he has personal reasons because of his personality and his inability to lose, I guess, that are behind a lot of this. For the party, it's because uh, the Republican Party fundamentally now, the Trumpist Party, has decided um, that they're no longer going to be um, subject to the will of the people in elections. Losing is no longer an option. And Democratic governance, capital D, when Democrats govern, is by its very nature illegitimate. Um, there are strains of that all throughout the body politic now on the Republican side. And when you internalize that, you can then see the justification for things like QAnon adherents running for um, running for election responsibility in the swing states. You can see why zero Republicans, zero who are trying to stay viable in the Republican Party, voted to fix the Electoral Count Act because they know if they do, um, they're in big trouble with I, Trump I, and the rest of the party. I do want to point out, we've talked to a number of election officials at the, at the state level, and these are these are people just trying to make sure the elections run the way they're supposed to. Some of them are Republicans, and they are just as concerned Absolutely. About they're being attacked, they're being threatened, even though they're they're part of the GOP and they are just as concerned about this as as you are, Todd. We also went and called up some of the people who were making the threats. It's extremely important because Republicans of good conscience, and there are many, and there are many in the election apparatus. The, the, the election administration industry has a long and rich and very proud uh, history of nonpartisanship. It's not even you know partisanship that I leave at the door. It's really nonpartisanship when you talk to these people. They're not in it for the money. It doesn't pay anything. They're not in it for the glory. We ignored them up until four years ago, probably, thankfully. Uh, it is now a dangerous job. It is now a job imbued with threats. And it is a job where election officials are being driven away from office in droves. There's a place called Gillespie County in Texas, a very, very heavily Trump district. Trump won it, I, I don't know, by 40 points, probably more. The entire election staff, including the leader, mm -hmm. left. And yeah. you know that. Um, so this is all over America in precincts large and small. I, I spoke to one official from Arizona who up until a couple of months ago was the chief of security for the Arizona Secretary of State, basically not personal security, but election security, you know, securing the ballots. Um, he was very adamant about the integrity of this industry. And he said, you know, up until now, I would tell you that I would put my faith in the honest administration of any election in this country, because I've been in this industry for 20 years, and I know all about it. I can't say that after 2022. And it's not because it's filled with bad people. It's because when people of good faith leave, they are often replaced by people of bad faith and people on a mission and people joining election administration um, because they're, um, they're there for ideological reasons. And that is a recipe um, combined with go to the top and combine it with what the Supreme Court is, is contemplating with basically a revanchist interpretation of the Constitution. And you can see then from top at the Supreme Court here in Washington, all the way down to the township level in a place like Texas, um, is a new Republican attitude. Maybe it's not new in some ways, but a new Republican attitude that elections are no longer to be contested in a, in a jump ball fashion. Um, elections are to be won at all costs, and democratic governance is illegitimate so that if you quash it, 
you don't really have uh, an ethical liability there because it wasn't legitimate in the first place. Well, we heard from Stewart in North Carolina who emailed, I was a poll worker in Durham, North Carolina in the 1990s. I did my best to ensure a smooth, free and fair election. We got a few paranoids from the left back then, I believe, who had a lot of questions, but mostly my neighbors were respectful and thankful regardless of party. I would never do that job today. It's only a matter of time before violence erupts at the polling places. Wendy, when we talk about threats against election workers. What have you seen in your research? So um, I I wanted to start with that caller from North Carolina because it's important. uh, First, it's it's very important that um, Americans um, actually volunteer to be poll workers. We have a shortage. Our system depends on people of good conscience, responsible people actually um, taking up these roles and ensuring that our election runs smoothly. And one of the interesting things, as he pointed out, is that even when people who doubt the integrity of the election, who who are conspiracy theorists, participate in the system as poll workers, as election workers, their trust in the system increases dramatically once they see how it is run, once they see how everything is done in bipartisan teams and all the checks in place. They, they, their um, faith in the system goes up a lot. Sadly, Our election workers, election officials and other election workers have been under unprecedented strain, harassment, threats. We did multiple surveys of local election officials across the country and found that more than one in six of them actually had their lives threatened or their families' lives threatened. Uh, Almost a a supermajority of them all found that the threat environment has increased dramatically. More than 60% of them are really worried that they're facing political pressure to um, sabotage the elections or they they might um, be asked to interfere in the outcome. So the politicization and threat environment is um, intolerable. We really do need to support those officials who are actually, by and large, people of good conscience, professionals who are well-trained. And that's one of the critical checks at a time where we're seeing unprecedented abuses at the state legislative level, real politicization of the process, an attempt to manipulate the rules of elections to benefit one party, to enable one party to, or or really anybody once they get in power, to interfere in election outcomes. We need more checks. And instead, what we are seeing is an attempt to remove the checks that currently exist against abuses. And the case that the the North Carolina case is, is a great example. The federal courts have stepped away from protecting against partisan gerrymandering, those kinds of redistricting abuses, the Supreme Court said, you can always go to your state courts and state constitutions protect against this. Now they're coming back to court saying, no, state constitutions also are impotent here. We can gerrymander with impunity. And the system loses, the voters lose when we don't have a robust set of checks and balances in place to protect against abuses. And while... Well, I want to pause for a moment because we got this tweet from Mike Dorson, and I do want to address this before we wrap up. Mike says, if one makes Democrats feel voting rules are fair, then Republicans question the authenticity of the election. On the other hand, if Republicans feel the vote is secure, then Democrats claim the election is rigged. Where is the common ground? I mean, Todd, in your reporting, and I don't, I think we can both point to things like gerrymandering. We know that happens on both sides of the aisle. But when we talk about securing elections, Where is their common ground right now? I have a little bit of a problem with the premise of that 
tweet. Respect to the tweeter, and I and I appreciate that they're joining the conversation. I'm not really aware of a both sides uh, dynamic that goes on here. Um, I uh, I'm just not aware. I think the one example, the one counterfactual that a lot of Republicans will point to is Stacey Abrams after her loss in 2018 in Georgia, where she at first refused to concede uh, because of voter suppression in that state. Um, She now says that she lost. Um, The difference is that is really important. Stacey Abrams never undertook to overturn the results of an election. She certainly never um, stormed the Capitol building in Atlanta or anything like that um, and never tried to install partisan actors in the voting apparatus um, all over Georgia. A difference totally in kind. I haven't really seen the dynamic that the tweeter describes where Republicans all of a sudden say they're comfortable with um, an election apparatus because part of um, part of an article of faith of Republicanism right now is to question them everywhere until uh, the results come in that you win. And I think we're going to have to go through 22 and probably 24 before we land in a place where we know uh, where this is really going. That's Todd Zwillick. He's the host of the new Vice News series, Breaking the Vote, which looks at threats to our democracy. Also with us, Wendy Weiser, director of the Democracy Program at the Brennan Center for Justice at the NYU School of Law, and Carolyn Shapiro, co-director of Chicago Kent's Institute on the Supreme Court of the United States. Thanks to you all. This show was part of 1A's Remaking America collaboration with six partner stations around the country. Remaking America is funded in part by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Today's producer was June Leffler with help from Anna Casey. This program comes to you from WAMU, part of American University in Washington, distributed by NPR. I'm Jen White. Thanks for listening, and we'll talk more soon. This is 1A.